In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother of Divine Grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. This morning's conference is on prayer, and I have observed um, several times in the past that one of the biggest problems today is that mental prayer has collapsed among the faithful. Very few people actually pray anymore. Now, a lot of people do vocal prayers, which we'll talk about in a little bit, which are good, but there's also um, mental prayer, which we'll talk about as well, which is essential for advancing in the spiritual life. The people always wonder, you know, a lot of times people get to a point in their spiritual life where they're staying out of mortal sin, for the most part. And what that means is, is uh, then, then they'll come to the priest and they'll say, you know, well, I'm staying out of mortal sin, you know, and I'm, tr- I'm working on my venial sins, what do I do from here? And what that's a sign of is, is that people don't realize that the advancement in the spiritual life, where you're at in your spiritual life is directly proportionate where you're at in the nine levels of prayer. There's nine levels. And so mental prayer is the second level, and if you don't, that's the entrance. The second level is always the entrance into the last uh, seven levels of prayer. So you need to work on mental prayer if you're going to advance um, uh, in the spiritual life. St. Thomas, in his Summa Theologia, says that prayer gives expression to reason. He takes it from uh, St. Cassiodorus, who says that prayer is called as if the mouth of reason. And what he means by this is that prayer pertains to our intellect, because prayer is defined as lifting the mind and heart to God. So it's, it's something that's not done at a lower level in us. It's something that engages our higher faculties, and we're lifting them up to God and directing them towards God. Therefore, prayer pertains to reason, or our intellect, and not to our emotions. And this is why we pray when we know we should, that is, according to the order of reason, and not when we feel like it, which is according to our emotions. And very often people say, well, I just don't feel like praying, or, you know, it takes me a while to kind of get into the idea of praying or whatever. You just, if you know it's supposed to be done, you just have to, uh, through force of will, do it. By prayer, we direct our faculties to God, which means that prayer flows from charity. Charity is the virtue in our will, which directs all the other virtues, it directs our fa- all our other faculties, because we choose, through charity, what we're going to do. And so... Um, prayer, when a person has a lot of charity, they naturally want to direct their mind to God and to think about Him. Divine providence, St. Thomas says, is not only disposed to what effects will take place. In other words, God, in His wisdom, determines that certain things are going to happen. But He also allows um, that things come not just from Him, but also from secondary... In theology, we call secondary causes, namely us and angels and things like that. And so God, in his providence, considers both what he himself is going to directly cause and then what he's going to indirectly cause through other people. And so from that, he then can direct history. People have the idea that history is, uh, you know, ultimately a man's choice or man's decision. It's not true. It's true we can affect some things, but ultimately... God has the control over the direction of history because if he knows that a specific individual is going to make a choice and therefore it's going to affect history in a way that he doesn't want it to happen, he doesn't create them. He doesn't have to. So he creates the people who he knows will direct it to its specific end. 
That doesn't mean that always that he, uh, that because of our sinfulness, that certain things don't enter into history that he doesn't want. He allows that. But the ultimate course of history is determined by God. In man's actions, uh, it is not, we do not through our actions change God's mind in prayer. In other words, when we pray to God or we offer something up, we don't change God's mind. Why? Because he's eternal and unchangeable. He can't change. So does that mean you just stop praying? Well, it's no good. He's not going to change his mind. No, that's not it at all. What it means is that God preordains that in order to get a specific thing, like, for instance, if you want to convert your husband or convert your wife or to obtain some virtue for your child or whatever, that he preordains that a certain amount of prayer and penance is going to have to be done in order for you to get that. So you might start out, it seems like you're doing a lot, but you're just like, well, how come he's not listening to my prayer? Oh, he's listening. He's just waiting until you reach the amount that's necessary that he preordains in order for you to achieve this. So it doesn't mean that we change God's mind again. It just means that we have to, do, we have to continue praying, even if it doesn't seem like it's having its effect. God is watching it until we see what, um, he's paying very close attention to our prayers until we reach the, uh, the amount that he wants, and then he grants us what we, uh, what we ask of him. And so this is quite important for us to keep that in mind, to pray unceasingly. Through prayer, St. Thomas says, man exhibits reverence and honor to God, insofar as he is subject to God and he pro- and Man profits by praying for the things he needs from the author of all goods. So prayer is one of the principal means for us to obtain what we need. Prayer, St. Thomas says, is an act of the virtue of religion, which, if you look at the structure that he has, religion is what we owe to God in justice. That is, the, oh, the highest virtue that we have is justice, and injustice pertains to different people. But under the justice that we have to render to God, there's religion, and then underneath that is prayer. So what that means is, is that for St. Thomas, we have an obligation in justice to pray to God every single day. It is kind of a misconception among Catholics that, you know, as long as I stay out of mortal sin, if I don't do anything evil, I'm fine. But there's also sins of emission. In other words, it's not enough just to stay away from sin. There are positive things that we have to do if we're going to save our souls. St. Augustine says, he who does not pray will not be saved. So it's because we have to, to render a certain amount of prayer every single day to God in justice. This means we have an obligation to pray to God every day. How much it is that we have to pray, we'll see in just a bit. The value of intercessory prayer, that is to pray for other people, fulfills the requirements of God in both justice and in trying to obtain the amount of prayer necessary to get what we want. This means that um, praying to, like, for instance, the saints and things like that, and when they pray for us or ask God or petition for God for us, uh, then they can aid us in meeting the necessary requirements to get what we want. One of the reasons why you just, you know, one of the reasons why in the Catholic theology you actually go to saints and to angels to ask them to pray for you or to ask God for specific things is specifically so that the requirements, remember God preordains that a certain amount of prayer and a certain amount of penance have to be met in order for you to get what you want. Well, if you get a bunch of people on board praying for that, then you're more likely to obtain it than if you're just trying to do it on your own. And this is why praying for um, praying to intercessors is quite important. While it is true that man may not always know what to pray for, 
If we ask the Holy Ghost to aid us, he will move us through holy desires to seek the things that we need. And therefore, when we see the things that we need, then we'll end up um, praying more to ask for those things. As I mentioned, you know, one of the things that God likes to do is he'll oblige people very quickly if they want to know what their sins are. He's very quick to let you know, and usually it's kind of brutal. But uh, this is a necessary thing because very often people are so blind to their own sin, they don't even know what they need to pray for. And so we can ask the Holy Ghost to, to give us the grace to see what our sins are so that we can help to overcome them. And this is one of the principal things that prayer needs to do is ask God's aid in helping us to come to knowledge of our defects. Grace, actual grace, has two principal effects. The first is to enlighten the mind, and the second is to strengthen the will. That is, the will is strengthened, it's resolved to do what is right, and so God inclines us to do the right thing through grace, but also it enlightens the mind. Now, if you see like your spouse or somebody is kind of clueless or whatever the case may be, or if you yourself think you're clueless, which is, pertains to all of us, uh, laboring under original sin, then if you pray to God, he'll enlighten your mind so that you can see what your defect is or what your spouse can see the defect that they have. And also, sometimes people see the defect that they have. So one of the reasons you pray for, pray for other people is so that they can get the grace so that they can make the choice of will to do the right thing, even if they know it. In fact, you see that from time to time. People will say, to, uh, I'll ask you know, some of those under my spiritual direction, well, how's it coming with X, you know, the particular def defect that you have? You say, oh, awful, which kind of alarms me. You know, It's true that it's honest, which is good. At least they're being honest. It's always good to be honest with your spiritual director, your confessor. But it's also a manifestation that they're not doing everything they could because they're so frank about it. Uh, in other words, there should be a certain embarrassment because we're not doing everything that we should. God desires that we ask for specific things, and people will find it more efficacious. For example, if we ask for a specific virtue which we know we lack, it is more efficacious. That is, it's God will help us more than if we just ask for things in general. That's not saying that asking for things in general isn't good. I mean, sometimes, you know, you just have to say, well, you know, help my son, or whatever the case may be. But um, it is better for us to know the specific thing. Like, for instance, if you look in the ritual of the Mass, the prayers are very specific. And the reason they're specific, they ask for very specific things, which is one of the things I, I dislike to a certain degree about the new rites. You know, it's, oh God, you are so big, help us, amen. Well, God wants us to be very specific. You know, God, give me the virtue of humility and meekness so that I may no longer suffer from anger. You know, in other words, that's a much more efficacious prayer for two reasons. One, because by asking for a specific thing, God will give us a specific grace for it. But also, God wants us to recognize what our problems are. And when we pray in general, we don't always ask, or not necessarily just our problems, but for the, our specific needs. When we pray in general, it's not as clear in our own mind than if we think of things specifically that we need because then that gives direction and focus to our spiritual life and to our prayer. So as a result, God prefers that prayers be more specific. Should man pray for temporal goods? Every so often I have a relative who says, well, I'm just praying to God I win the lottery. And I think this person's being honest. They are praying to God I'll be with the lottery. It's the same person who said, I wish I had a money tree, and I said, it wouldn't do you any good. And the person said, why? And I said, because you'd have a plucked bald, and it would never fruition to the $100 bills. <laughs> All right. 
So the question is, should we pray for temporal goods? St. Thomas says that temporal goods should not be sought for their own sake, but insofar as they lead us to beatitude, that is, insofar as they lead us to heaven. So, for instance, the reason a husband prays for a good job to make money um, or things like that, or even for a wife to pray that they make the money that they need, is to fulfill the moral obligations in the family, which will help them to lead a better life of virtue or something like that. And so St. Thomas says it is okay to pray for, for uh, temporal goods. And he also says that it is okay to pray for things that are necessary for bodily welfare because, um, for instance, if a person has a particular illness, you can offer that up to God, that's true, and that's a good thing, but sometimes God wants us to pray for our bodily health so that we become more healthy and therefore we can pray more or pray more ardently because sometimes it's hard to pray when we're sick. And so it's okay to actually pursue these things from God. But it must be very clear that temporal goods are sought only secondarily from God. And so, because the principal thing that we have to do is seek what is spiritually to our advantage. The order of charity demands that we really only pray for temporal goods insofar as they are necessary for our spiritual lives. And that's quite important. You pray for them if they're going to help your spiritual life. If not, sometimes you don't know. And if they're not, if they're not, you can just say, well, um, I'm not going to pray for that because that would be harmful to me. Uh, or sometimes you can, if, if you're not really sure, you can just tell God, God help us to get this unless it's um, not good for our family or whatever the case may be. But the principal thing you have to do is to work on praying for those things that will help you spiritually. Sometimes those who are sinful or in sin do not know what they need, as I mentioned, so you have to pray for it. Then there are other distinctions within prayer. One of them is the public prayer of the church and then a private prayer of the individual. And private prayer, which is offered by a single person, doesn't need to be vocal. Public prayer does. Uh, somebody who, who's ever um, leading the public prayer, at least, needs to be vocalizing it if for no other reason than to, for people to follow along or uh, so that um, the proper manifestation of our um, of what we uh, what we want is made clear, which will see, which is also manifest in our body, which we'll see as we go along, because we're not rationalists or you know Platonists. The, our perfection consists in both actions of body and soul, not just the soul, even though the soul is more principled. Voicing of prayers, however, Saint Thomas says, has a threefold reason. The reason you use vocal prayer is one. Through sensible signs, that is, by speaking, our minds and hearts are raised to God, and so private prayer is vocalized for the sake of exciting our minds. In other words, sometimes you even hear people like this, they'll say things to themselves, and it helps them, that when they hear it, it helps them to understand more of what they're saying. And that's why we vocalize prayers to incite us to prayer. If, however, in our own private prayer, our mind is distracted by this, then we should cease in the vocal prayer. Because, again, it's the lifting of the mind and heart to God, and if it's going to get in the way of the mind and the heart, then you put it aside. Uh, sometimes people will find that vocalizing things is a bit of a distraction when they're not sufficiently prepared, or, or sorry, when they are sufficiently prepared already. Sometimes it's good to vocalize kind of in the beginning to kind of get the mind and everything, all the faculties directed. As one advances in the spiritual life, our prayer becomes less and less vocal and more interior, except when we pray the public prayers of the church, for example, the priest at Mass. Okay, so the first thing you do is you do it to help to lift your mind and heart to God. Two, since we must render to God everything that he has given us, 
it is suitable that we pray also corporally, that is, bodily, so that our mind and um, body are given back to God. In other words, it becomes a full giving. Now, that doesn't mean that vocal prayer is the highest form of prayer. It's the lowest form of prayer. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's, it's a good form of prayer, but it's the lowest form of prayer. And people shouldn't get stuck just on vocal prayer alone, which we'll talk about in a minute. For the sake of redundancy, from the mind of the body to respect, with respect to affection. Now, what that means is that's the third thing. For St. Thomas, the reason you vocalize things is because it helps our lower bodily faculties to become more directed. And as a result, they become more subservient to reason and will, which can then be freed and not impeded by the lower faculties, because very often our imagination or our, our emotions or things like that, vocal prayer can kind of help get those things a little bit more subdued um, until a person reaches kind of a more advanced stage in which those things are already subdued and then they can just more quickly enter into meditation. So these things, so vocal prayer actually helps a person to lift the mind and heart to God and to help those who are less devout or less advanced in prayer to become more devout. Regarding private prayer, since there are nine levels of prayer, and since all of us are called to the ninth level, the ninth level is what they call the transforming union. Some of you have heard this from me. In which Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross talk about this, more principally Teresa of Avila, but in the sense that it tra at the stage of transforming union, a person reaches a, it's called mystical marriage, but a person is in a constant state of mystical contemplation, so that they're in a constant state of ecstasy, but they can still execute their functions in life. They can function very similar to what Our Lady was. Um, it is generally considered that once she was accepted to be the mother of God, the mystical marriage took place, and from that point on, she was always kind of in a state of ecstasy in the sense that she always... It doesn't mean she knew everything that was going on around her. It just means that God's company, the company of the Holy Ghost, was always mentally present to her. And so her prayer from that point on, or her life from that point on, was a constant state of prayer. And that's what we're, what's we, we're trying to strive for. That's why um, Christ said, pray always. St. Thomas asks, you know, can we actually pray always? And he says, well, because of the limitation of our faculties, no. And that's true, except for when you reach that ninth level of prayer. So all the other levels of prayers, you kind of go in and out of prayer, but um, you are to strive for that highest level. The lowest level, of course, is vocal prayer, and so we shouldn't get stuck in vocal prayer. A person who says strictly vocal prayers manifest the fact that they have not advanced spiritually. Now that this is not necessarily of those of lesser intelligence. So for instance, people who aren't very, who are, you know, just really have a difficult time even, you know, reasoning their way out of a paper bag, so to speak, may find that vocal prayers are about as far as they can get, maybe do a little bit of meditation and that's about it. But most people of average intelligence should use vocal prayers to help focus their prayer and help focus their mind and heart but after that, there comes a point where they have to be entering into a um, mental prayer. I mentioned that, you know, that mental prayer has collapsed among the laity, and I think the principal reason that is is because it's, it's no longer in the liturgy, at least in the new mass, because people are so used to everything being vocal that the minute the vocal stops, they think, well, then prayer is finished. Whereas in the old mass, the meditation habituates people in meditation, because when you're at mass, if, provided you're not giving in to distraction, uh, then it's a uh, person has to meditate. At least, hopefully, they're meditating on uh, on our Lord and the Passion and things of this sort, rather than on what's on their laundry list or something like that. 
but the point is is that uh, the we have to we have to strive for gaining mental prayer, and that's one of the reasons why I encourage people to go to the old mass because it's more easy for them. Usually, when people come to the old mass, there's kind of a rebellion of the appetites because they're so used to the appetites being fed through all the vocal prayer, and then once that ceases, they're they're a bit lost. But I tell them just be patient, keep going, and then eventually, when the passions kind of quiet down from the repetition of going to mass, then they can more easily enter into the meditation. But if a person is sticking only only to the vocal prayers, again, there's always a certain amount of vocal prayer that's good. Um, but if they're sticking only to the vocal prayers, then that's a bad sign. It means they're not advancing spiritually. Vocal prayer can aid distraction, but it also can take, but it can also be a distraction. And it, so it depends on where a person is at in their spiritual life. The higher forms of prayer require no vocalization to occur, since the lower faculties must be quiet to enter into the higher forms of prayers. In other words, um, you know, the mouth has to kind of shut up, the emotions have to be quiet, everything has to be quiet on the lower part of this so that we're free to enter into a more perfect union with God by lifting our minds. Prayer should have uh, a few qualities. It should always be said with attention, so you have to pay attention in your prayer. Uh, otherwise, you're not doing yourself a lot of good. Uh, distraction is kind of another matter, which we'll talk about in a bit. Then a person should say it with devotion which we're going to talk about um, later today, what devotion actually is. You should say it with sincerity and a rightly ordered faith. Uh, people say, you know, well, it's good to get the Protestants praying for X. Well, A, if they're not in the state of grace, they're not meriting anything. Your prayer is completely inefficacious if you're not in the state of grace. All it does is it might dispose you towards receiving grace, but God has no obligation to give it to you. So, you have to be in the state of grace. No mortal sins. If you commit a mortal sin, your prayer is completely inefficacious. It doesn't do you any good. Uh, except in the, so far as it helps you to direct your faculties to God. But in the end, you don't merit anything from God if you're not in the state of grace. But also, you have to have, the rightly, or, you have, to have a rightly ordered faith. If I, for instance, if someone comes to you and they want to ask you for something because you have it, that's good. But if they do it in the wrong way, if they do it, like, for instance, in an assaulting way, or they say it in a way that offends you, you're probably not going to give it to them. It's the same way with God. If uh, we don't have rightly ordered faith, which means if our prayer doesn't manifest an authentic Catholic faith, it's going to run the possibility of offending God, and as a result, it's going to be inefficacious. God won't give it to you. So, orthodoxy is an absolute requirement for the efficacy of your faith. It's that simple. And the more, the more you know your faith the more perfectly you can pray. This is why the church has always uh, made, try to encourage people that way. Prayer should also, uh, how long should prayer be? You know, some people say, well, the longer it is and the slower it is, the more pious it is, or the more meditative it is. Well, St. Thomas says that prayer should be as long as it is necessary to excite the interior fervor of desire or devotion. So it's as long, no longer or no less than it takes to kind of incite the, the de devotion. If prayer is too long, he says, it becomes tedious and hard to sustain. So sometimes people have this idea that the longer the Mass is, the more pious it is. No, not necessarily. If some guy's dragging Mass out, even the old Mass out for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes for a low Mass, uh, he's going to drive everyone away because people just simply can't sustain it. On the other hand, if he says a 15-minute low mass, 
then people can't excite the proper devotion, and that's not a good thing either. So it should be no longer and no, or sh- it should be no longer or no shorter than is necessary. I mentioned, you know, that you have to be in the state of grace to merit, but this also means the holier you are, the more meritorious your prayer is. So, for instance, uh, you know, this is why it's, it's good people would go to, say, someone like Padre Pio and say, would you pray for X? And then the, he says one minor prayer, and the next thing you know, everything's happening, even though someone else had been praying their whole life for it. And what that's a sign of is, is that the holier we are, the more God is pleased with us, and therefore more likely to give us what we want. And it's, it's God is... We are like God, so to speak, in the sense that, um, you know, and we, there's different people in our lives, and some we'd like a lot. So if they ask us, it's almost impossible for us to say no to them because we like them so much. But on the other hand, there's some people we like a little bit, but if they come and ask us, we're more likely to be more judicious about what we're going to give to them. Well, the same thing kind of applies to God. The whole you are, the more God just wants to give you everything you want. That's because you're rightly ordered. So... If you're, if you're finding that your prayer isn't very efficacious, you need to work on your holiness more. The obligation to pray, according to all of the traditional teachings and according to the saints, the obligation to pray is a grave one. If you don't pray enough every day, sometimes it depends. I mean, if you're praying some, that's probably only venial sinful, but if people systematically neglect their prayer, it's morally sinful. That's what it means. If you're not praying at all, it's gravely sinful because your obligation to pay back to God, to render back to Him through prayer, um, your faculties and things like this because He gave them to you, is offensive to God. Well, this might fulfill strict... Oh, oh, sorry. How much should an average person pray? Uh, Priests should pray much more, but for the average layman, the average layman should pray a minimum of 15 to 30 minutes per day. This, now, obviously, this ebbs and flows depending upon um, one's obligations and state in life. If one is, you know, working 16 hours a day and you're barely lucky to get home and get a meal and get to bed, then maybe five minutes might be fulfilling your obligations, or you can sneak it in throughout the course of the day when you have time. But normally, it should be a minimum of 15 to 30 minutes per day. For a layman, this can be fulfilled by going to Mass, saying a rosary or something of this sort. So if you say a rosary, usually that will fulfill your obligation to pray to God. But while this might fulfill the strict justice, it does not fulfill the precept of charity to pray always. In other words, our Lord said that we should be striving for that highest level of prayer. We must always be working to pray more. Now, there is a thing, some of you might have heard me talk about, there's this thing called hagasthenia. It's a Greek term which means tiredness of sacred things. And what can happen is if people try and pray too much right away, then they get burned out, and then they tend to fall, and then they don't, they don't want to do it. So what that means is we have to work on ourselves to get us so that we can pray more. So we have to, prayer is a habit, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, so you have to kind of get into the habit of it, and then you can do it for longer periods of time. St. Thomas says that we, uh, says we cannot do, we cannot pray again because of limitations of our faculties always until we reach the transforming union, so we have to continue working on that. Meditation. So the first level of prayer is vocal prayer. The next one is meditation. What meditation is, is meditation is, is we think about God or some attribute of God or some manifestation or perfection in God through some creature or something like that, and we look at it from a different point of view. That's meditation. 
and you just keep thinking about it and looking at it from different points of view and pray and, and you know praying to God and to direct your faculties to God and to speak to him interiorly and that's what meditation is so one of the things that can help you a great deal is the particular spiritual reading you're doing because the spiritual reading can very often give you some point of reflection or meditation um, like if it talks about some perfection of God, like his mercy or his justice or something like that, then you can take that and think about how God works in your own life in this regard or in other people's lives or how you've seen it or just as it is in him. Sometimes you can just consider God in himself, like the Trinity, the fact that he's perfectly simple, he's omnipotent, or things like that. Um, sometimes they're a little difficult for people, but you can work on that, and that's what meditation is. And as you keep meditating, what happens is that you, and you start working on mortification, because one of the principal ways in which you can help your prayer is by mortifying yourself. Um, I don't know if I talk about that, so I'll go into that. Sometimes people find they're distracted. That's because the lower faculties aren't under control. Well, one of the principal ways you get it under them under control is denying them what they want, and that's called mortification. So you do some type of fasting or things like that, and people will find that they're really distracted, that the mortification will help them a great deal in overcoming the distractions. Um, but as a person begins um, overcoming those obstacles and your mortification and your imperfections begin to wane and your prayer life advances and you get the habit of prayer, your prayer begins to become more fixed and less discursive. What does that mean? It means that, you know, I was saying you look at it from a variety of different points of view and consider it. That begins to wane a little bit and you become fixed and it just remains a person enters into um, uh, the, the fourth level of prayer in which the faculties become perfectly fixed just on thinking about the attributes. So in other words, a person just, the attribute of God's perfection, say of justice, they think of that and it remains fixed. They don't look at it from a variety of different points of view, it just remains fixed. And they look at it from a long period of, for a long period of time. The third level of prayer is effective prayer, which means um, meditation is more principally done with our intellect, even though we need the will to kind of do it. But effective prayer is that our will tends to predominate, so it proceeds more from charity. But then as these two, as you advance through effective prayer, which again can only happen as you're um, getting rid of your imperfections until you reach the prayer of simplicity in which it becomes fixed, the reason why I always tell people you have to work on your predominant faults and get rid of your faults, you cannot reach the prayer of simplicity until you have stopped venially sinning and you have overcome most, almost all of your imperfections on your own. Um, that's, that four levels of prayer is what we call the stage of active purgation. You don't enter into the mystical contemplation, which is the fifth level of prayer, until you have eradicated sin and imperfection from your life. And that's why I said, you know, the level of prayer determines where you're at in your spiritual life. So if you're not mystically contemplating, it's a sign that you're probably sinful, so make sure you eradicate that from your life. There are plenty of books that are quite useful in this regard. There's um, one of the ones I usually re recommend is a book by Lahoti. It's put out by Tan called The Ways of Mental Prayer. It's kind of a dry read. You know, you're not going to get a lot of spiritual consolation out of it, but uh, that's good in itself too because it'll wane you from spiritual consolations. But it's, uh, it's a good book because it, it deals with the mechanics, but it also deals with all the preparation and other things you need to do to make sure that your mental prayer is done well. Preparation for mental prayer has to be done by spiritual reading. So you need to read, need to read things that will help you to pray better, that will give you um, things to meditate on, as I mentioned. You have to get away from distractions. 
So get to places that are quiet. If you can set up a room in your house where, you know, people should be quiet around that room or in the room, that's always good. So people can go in there and pray. You have to take a bit of time to focus your mind and heart. You can't, most people, unless they're, you know, always in the habit of just kind of falling into prayer, which usually comes much more later down the road in their spiritual life, they have to take the time and kind of get things, you know, situated around themselves and get focused psychologically or mentally before they can enter into this. Some, as you advance more in your spiritual life, you'll find that you can just enter right into the mental prayer, but that usually takes a little bit of getting used to. Vocal prayer sometimes helps with the preparation, as I mentioned before. And there's different methods that you can, you know, like there's the Ignatian method of praying and things like that, which you can find. Um, I think Lahoti talks about them somewhat. Um, you, I think a lot of that stuff you can get off the Internet, which is good, about the specific methods. There's Franciscan methods and Ignatian methods and all the different kinds of methods to enter into prayer. Those are good for people who are starting out to get a structure and to get habits built up. But once you reach, you know, effective prayer or the prayer of simplicity, the methodology will begin to, use of it will wane a bit um, because the person doesn't need them because the habits are already developed and they can more enter into prayer. Distractions. Why does God allow them? He allows them, uh, he allows us to suffer them to manifest that uh, we are not praying enough. Uh, and also, what he wants to make sure is, because even though Teresa of Avila complained, and even when she was reaching the heights of perfection, she complains of distraction, what that's a sign is that you haven't reached the stage of transforming union, which means you're not praying all the time. So you have to keep working on it. By not praying enough, I mean you just have to keep working on it. But also, uh, God wants, it, prayer is not easy. It's a habit. Now, if we're not in the habit of praying, that means we have a vice of not praying. And every time we have a vice, to go against it is difficult. We all know that in our own lives. And so it takes a while for us to get into the habit of prayer, to build this virtue of prayer, so that it becomes easy and we can sustain it longer. But if we find that we're distracted and it's very difficult, that's a sign that our habit of prayer isn't perfect yet. And so you have to keep going. Prayer is not an easy thing. It's arduous. And God allows temptations to test you. Are you doing this because it's easy? Are you doing this because you get consolations out of it? Or are you doing it because you're trying to manifest a constancy of will? That is, you're, you're going to do this. You just, you know, if you get distracted, I'm going to bring myself back and remain, get back focused. Because sometimes we can't really help it because our lower faculties are just going to go off on their own. We have to get them back under control. And God wants us to do that. So he'll allow us the distractions in order for us to manifest that we're doing this because we love him. And that's it. And so God, again, allows the distractions to see how willing, how much do we really want to obtain this perfection of prayer. Therefore, regardless of how distracted you get, you have to keep plugging along. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm just so distracted all the time, my prayer is completely inefficacious. Well, there's probably other reasons why it's inefficacious, but... It really comes down to uh, people, can't, people can't get discouraged. They have to keep doing it because, again, it's a habit. You have to keep working on it. And St. Thomas says there's all, all sorts of debate about whether a distraction is sinful, it's venally sinful, and things like that. Some of the writers say it's venally sinful. Some of them say it's not sinful at all. Some say that if you get distracted, you lose, all the, you lose the merit for that time in which you're distracted and things like that. Well... 
my own opinion of it is I tend to take St. Thomas's view with a slight modification because he doesn't deal with one aspect of it. That, uh, it's not because he... It's, I think it's because he just wasn't thinking about it at the time as he was dealing with something more specific. But St. Thomas says that if we enter in with the intention of not being distracted and trying to pray properly, if we get distracted through no fault of our own, and then when we realize we're distracted, we bring it back, St. Thomas says we actually get the merit even for the prayer, even when the time we're distracted, which I think is true because it's no fault of our own and we're trying to do, our intention is to do the right thing. But one thing, one addition I would make is um, if the distraction occurs volitionally, in other words, if you give in to a distraction at a time when you're supposed to be praying, then it's venally sinful. Unless it becomes so habitual and you're just doing it constantly, then it becomes morally sinful, for, for example. If you give in to distraction, now by giving in I mean the distraction comes and then you realize I'm distracted. Yeah, but I kind of like that more than paying attention at Mass, so you go off on it. I think it's venally sinful because your obligation is to be paying attention at Mass. And these 15 to 30 minutes a day, I think your obligation is to be paying attention during that, too, to the degree that you can. Outside of that, that is, when you're talking about the prayers in which um, you're going above and beyond your strict obligations, I don't think it's venally sinful, but I think it is a manifestation of an imperfection, and you need to work on it. So you have to keep going on. You have to realize that even the greatest mystics, like Teresa of Abba, complained about it. And what she would do is she would get a, um, to keep her faculties focused, she'd get a prayer book or a cards with pictures and things on it, so that when, it, um, when she'd get distracted, she could look down and get her faculties refocused. As I mentioned, meditation is uh, necessary to advance in the spiritual life. And so you have to really work on it. It's a virtue. It's a habit, which means as a habit, it only comes from repeated action. People will, you know, for like two or three days, they'll, they'll say, well, I prayed, but it just was so hard, and, you know, it should be easier than this. So I must not need to pray that much because, you know, it's just difficult for me. Other people, it's easier, so they should pray more. Uh-uh. What it's a sign of is the difficulty in prayer is a sign of your imperfection. So the fact that you're struggling means that you have to keep doing it so that you can develop it as a habit. And so then, like every other habit, there's two aspects to a habit. St. Thomas and Aristotle say. A habit makes doing the action easy. So the more you do it, the easier it gets. The second thing is, is that a habit gives a person delight in the thing or in the action about which the habit concerns. So, for instance, and have, when you first start out with prayer, because you use, most people have vices, they don't pray at all, and so they find praying distasteful and arduous, distracted and difficult. But that's a sign of their imperfection. But the more you pray and the, the more you fulfill your obligations in prayer and you start developing that, the sweeter prayer becomes. Not, and not in the sense that you're getting all these consolations, but that just in having the virtue and working on the virtue gives the person delight. And that's what you must strive for. That is, not for the consolations, but so that in the habit of prayer, your delight can rest perfectly in God. Because if you don't develop prayer, then you're never going to reach heaven. Now, what that means is, is in this life, if you don't pray, you're not going to be saved. And ultimately, that means if you're not going to direct your faculties to God, well, then why should he bless you with his presence if you're just not interested in him and you're not willing to direct your faculties to him. But if you don't, if you manage to save your soul in this life and you haven't really developed a good habit of prayer, it has to be purged from you in purgatory. Why? Because prayer is an ascendancy to God. Now, in heaven, 
The beatific vision consists in God taking himself and pressing it on our intellect, and then our will concomitantly moving towards that, and it has no control over it. We just, we can't help it. We just love him. Okay, so that's what prayer is. It's a lifting of the mind and heart of God. Heaven consists in a perpetual act of prayer. That means in this life, we start taking on the similitude of what it's like to be heaven by ascending the heights of prayer, by directing our faculties, our mind and heart, by lifting them to God, so that when we reach heaven, where our, our faculties are properly prepared, that's why Teresa of Avila says, or is it John of the Cross? Well, one of the two. Says that when you get to the stage of transforming union, there's no need for purgatory anymore because your faculties are perfectly fixed on God. If you remember, the fourth level of prayer is that you become fixed and there's no discursion. You just become fixed. And that's necessary to take so that your lower faculties won't cause problems when God takes you into mystical contemplation because he doesn't want those faculties interfering with what he does. So we have to get them under control by reaching that level of prayer. It's the same thing in heaven. Our faculties have to be ordered and perfected if we're going to see the beatific vision because the beatific vision can't be impeded by our other faculties being disordered. That's why you have to have perfect order. You have to be perfect in heaven because nothing can get become between you and God, so to speak, to, to inhibit you in the contemplation of him. And that's what prayer is. The more you pray, the more you begin to approximate what it like, is like to be in heaven. And therefore, the more you pray, the more you take on a similitude of eternal beatitude, that is, you become more like those in heaven. Therefore, prayer is the principal means to happiness. If you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedicto Deo omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, Supervos et Maniat Semper.